The first time I heard of listening as a ministry, instead of telling and talking and correcting, it was through Gary. First time I heard of a class on renewing the mind, it was Gary's class. And he's had a huge impact on my life. Uh, We met Gary when we moved here. And uh, he's been a friend and a mentor, a counselor at different times. Um, He's a world traveler, trains leaders around the world. And really, literally, some of the largest churches in the world. And Gary, I suspect some of the smallest, too. So all the way from Singapore to Russia and all sorts of places in between. Uh, Gary had a great influence on us as a church. His heart, his ministry to us, teaching us how to listen, how to show compassion. How, you know, just, just how important it is that there's a culture of mercy. And the very fact that we, we are a, a mercy-driven culture, we owe an awful lot of that influence to Gary Sweeten. And so welcome Gary with me right now as, as he comes up to give the message. Okay. Uh, you talk about some of the s- smaller churches. I've done a good bit of ministry in Norway, Sweden, and Denmark, and Russia. So that's pretty small churches over there a lot of times. So the churches are big, but the attendance is small. And uh, one of the pastors I know from Denmark came over and stayed with Karen and me for about 10 days. And I drove from my house down past Hope Church. And he said, what's that big building? I said, that's a church. He said, a church? Is that big? Uh, 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 evangelical church? I said, yeah. And look across the street and there's Christ Church. He said, what's that? I said, that's another big church. He said, those two churches would hold all the born-again Christians in Denmark. <laughs> that's, a, that's an exaggeration. But the movement of the Holy Spirit has been very, very powerful in Scandinavia and then uh, moving into uh, to Russia. Uh, so I started a ministry in Russia in 1995, and the Lord called me there. And someday maybe I'll come back and talk to you about missions and what the Lord is doing uh, in Russia and around the world. And being churches much like you, where you have the Word of God, the love of God, and the power of God. You have the Word, know the Scripture. Then you have love, the fruit of the Spirit, and then the power. And when you put those things together and open up everybody to have the gifts of the Spirit, wow, watch out. Because things are really, really going to happen in depth. So uh, what I want to share with you today, this is the journey to Jerusalem. Now, next week is, in my opinion, the great celebration of the entire Christian world, of history, the changing point that changed the fall, that changed everything, was next week in Easter. But let's talk about what happened moving up to Easter. Moving up to Easter, Jesus had to prepare his followers, his disciples and the 12 apostles to carry on because he was leaving. He knew he was leaving and he kind of tried to tell them he's leaving. (laughs) Remember that time he said, okay, I'm going away. And they said, huh, where are you going? So it's hard to get your message across. It's very difficult when you've been the person that's obviously Jesus Christ, the greatest teacher in the world, one of the greatest healer, doing all these miracles and stuff. And then there you are. And he says, all right, you're, you're the follow-up team. I'm leaving. I'm leaving it all to you. 
And I'm sure they thought they were in total denial and they couldn't do it. Now, I've had a little bit of experience with that as a teacher. I I taught school for five years in this little tiny town in in Illinois where I grew up. And uh, fifth and sixth grades and, and coached all sports. I learned more about discipleship and application of truth, the scripture, to life in that setting than I ever have from any church setting. Because what you learn is, and coaching especially, if you don't coach them right, they go out on the floor and their errors are essentially my errors of teaching, right? So anytime you think, I have these kids prepared, and they go out there and you say, no, no, no. Don't do that. I've told you a thousand times. And they turn around and say, huh, what? (laughs) One of the great experiences I had was if we got way behind or way ahead, and it was usually way behind in a basketball game, I'd let the fourth graders play to give them some experience, world experience. So I want you to think about the, the apostles and the disciples are sort of like my basketball team and, and what I'm going to tell you. And so we were way behind one time and I called this kid over his name, Vernon Sweeten. Now Vernon was a distant cousin of mine. And uh, he was a very obedient kid. He really wanted to please. Yes, Mr. Sweeten. Yes, Mr. Sweeten. What? And I said, well, I'm going to put you in the game. And the only thing you have to do is you just, you just guard your man. And that's number 14. You pay attention to number 14. And if he gets the, the ball, don't let him shoot. Okay, okay. So, of course, what happens? Number 14 got the ball. He's driving down the court. And the court there, that gym was no bigger than this church is wide. And the goal was about maybe that far from the wall, right? So the kid's going down. He goes up for a layup, and Vernon jumps right on his back. Wham! (laughs) They go up against the wall, and they're lying unconscious on the floor. (laughs) Now, you talk about a glaring coach error. (laughs) That showed that my coaching lacked something. (laughs) And when you get that kind of immediate feedback that your coaching is not working, you have to go... Re, uh, look at what you're doing. Well, I picked Vernon up and I walked back to the, to the bench and I said, Vernon, are you okay? He said, I done what you said, Mr. Sweeten. I didn't let him shoot. <laughs> not only had he not learned English from me by saying I done what you said, he didn't do what I wanted him to. But it was almost as though I thought he could read my mind and he, he knew I meant block the ball, not jump on the guy's back. So often Christianity is that way. We get these, go out and compel them to come in the highways and byways. And too often the church has been filled full of people who try to drive folks in rather than do the details. So Jesus is trying to prepare 12, and then he expands it. This is Luke 9, if you have your Bible with you. So in Luke 9, he sends the 12 out. And he gave them power and authority. Luke 9, 1. He gave them power and authority over the demons and how to heal all diseases. Now, these people had power and authority, but they didn't have wisdom because they had no experience or not much. How many of you have had a lot more vim and vigor and 
power and that, that produced heat, but not much light. Have you ever been in that situation? So they go out. He sent them go out to proclaim the kingdom of God has come. Okay, so they're going out. They, they've got to be terribly excited. They don't know exactly what it means, although they watched Jesus and they're going to try to do everything he did. I'm sure they do, but they haven't gotten the wisdom yet to know what I say. The main church of pastoral leadership is you got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away and know when to. Sometimes you run away because that's wisdom. You don't jump headlong into everything like Vernon did. Okay, so they go out and Jesus says, okay, here's your first test. He's teaching and about 5,000 people come and they spend most of the day there listening to Jesus. They get hungry and sleepy and tired. And so Jesus says, well, they came to him, the 12 did, and said, hey, you got to do something with these people. And uh, Jesus said, well, you feed them. They said, we can't feed them. We don't have the money. And he said, no, you feed them. And they said, we, we only have a couple of loaves and fishes, little fish and pieces of bread. We don't have enough. And I'm sure Jesus said, okay, let me show you one more time how you do it. Vernon, <laughs> get them in rows, had to organize them. The ministry has to be organized, set them in rows, and then they passed it out. And as they passed it out, there was enough for 5,000 people. So this was a, les- a lesson to them. You have power and authority to use it correctly in the right way. Okay, so there they go. They're traveling on a little bit. And Jesus said, let's go out and pray together on the mountain. And he took three of the key persons with him, Peter, James, and John. These are kind of the three, like you talk about the four horsemen of the apocalypse over at our church. We had, we were the key leaders of the church. And you have to be really careful that you don't get full of yourself when you're assigned by everybody. Oh, you're the key leaders. You're, you know, Dr. Sweeten. Yeah, Dr. Sweeten. So you have to be careful. You don't let your ego take over. So they went up to the mountain to pray. They're up to the mountain to pray. And this is called the Mount of Transfiguration. Did you know that? Verse 28, Luke 9. The Mount of Transfiguration. You know what happened there? Jesus starts praying and the Shekinah glory of God comes in such relevance that his whole countenance has changed. His clothing has changed. He glows. He's so caught up with the Lord. It's wonderful. And so here's Peter, James, and John sitting by the side watching this. So what do they do? Do you know what they do? They went to sleep. (laughs) Have you ever gotten tired in the midst of ministry just when the Lord starts to show up and you're, oh boy, I don't know. It's, It's getting late. I have many times. I have many times. So then when Jesus starts glowing and transformed and he's there with Elijah and Moses and they're all communicating, that wakes them up, the light comes on. And I said, oh, so Peter, what kind of personality does Peter have? Impetuous, right? He's always the first guy to speak. So what do you think Peter would say in this unbelievable worshipful moment of the Shekinah glory coming, God bringing all historical in the presence, huh? What do you think Peter said? Well, it's a good thing you got us. We can build three tabernacles for you. That's a good thing Peter was there, right? God couldn't do it on his own. (laughs) 
Jesus has been transformed right there in the presence of God. And Peter wakes up and says, you need us to do the building. <laughs> They've been asleep. When he wakes up, he wants to be in charge. Have you ever had anything like that where you see the Lord move and all of a sudden it just is a little bit tempting for you to take over? When he says tabernacle, the word tabernacle means dwelling with us. Dwelling with us. We need to build you three places so you can dwell with us. They were dwelling right then. But Peter, James, and John didn't seem to be able to enter into the dwelling. Another fail. And what you're going to see in this whole thing of preparation, in your whole life in Christ, is try, fall, fail, and do you get back up or not? If you don't get back up, it means you're really depending on yourselves. If you can get back up, it means your safety net's Jesus. You know, the Walinda brothers who walked on those high road, you know, sometimes they would do that without a net. Never go into ministry without a net. Make sure your net's Jesus. And if Jesus shows up and Jesus calls you and you don't quite make it, you run into your own flesh or the ego and you fail and you're embarrassed, Jesus can pick you up and use you again. That's what this whole thing shows right here. So the apostles went to sleep. And then they wake up and they start talking. They start saying, we're going to be in charge here. Then God spoke himself to them. And you know what he said? Shut up and listen. <laughs> Shut up and listen to my son. He's the chosen one. Oh my goodness. You talk about the need for listening. <laughs> for heaven's sake. Shut up and listen. It may be the Lord's already speaking. We don't have to do it. We don't have to build anything. The Lord is building his house. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Okay, so I'm sure they were embarrassed. It says they told nobody about this experience. Can you imagine? When you fail that badly, do you want to go tell everybody <laughs> about what you've done? Probably not. I don't. Usually I want to tell my success stories. Thank you very much. You may call me Dr. Sweeten. <laughs> Chapter 9, verse 46. They continued the journey. They're still walking around. And Jesus got to be a little bit ahead of it. Or maybe he's over sitting on a rock. I don't know where he is. And they get into an argument. The 12 now. Remember, these are the 12. The apostles. <laughs> they get into an argument. What do they get to an argument over? I'm the greatest in the kingdom. You know, Jesus is bringing the kingdom and I'm going to be the secretary of state. <laughs> I think you'll be the secretary of labor. Not very important. You're way down on the totem pole. No, I'm going to be the secretary. That's what they were arguing about. After this humbling experience of God speaking to them and saying, shut up and listen to my son. They get into an argument. Who's going to take over the kingdom? <laughs> listen, another magic fail, right? Another big fail. So then Jesus knows what they're doing. He has discernment, a lot of discernment. And when you're in ministry, you need discernment. And if you don't have discernment, listen, Listen, because Jesus has got the Holy Spirit can lead you. And then Jesus came over, took a little child, put the little child out there and says, come as a little child. Pay attention to the little child. 
They're learners. They want to learn. They're not trying to run things on their own necessarily. Okay, so they're humbled again, right? Maybe not humiliated because as you follow these guys, you'll see the flesh is hard to break. I've been a Christian uh, coming, this coming June, 69 years. I'm still learning. You still got to learn. And it's okay because Jesus is my safety net. Well, then verse 49. In verse 49, it's a follow-up to the, where Jesus says, be like a little child. So John, John there, he's the guy that Jesus said he loved him most. He was closest to him. He had greatest feelings for him. So John comes up and he said, well, really, Lord, we're doing a pretty good job. Because we saw somebody else healing and casting out demons, and we told them to stop because we don't want that competition. Right? Jesus said, no, 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 you don't get it. It's not about us fighting them. It's not us about you being the best. It's not about that kind of human power and ego. If they're not against us, they're for us. Oh, take your eyes off of this stuff. Get the eyes on the son and listen to him. The temptations to put ourselves out there at first never goes away. As far as I know, I've never met anybody where it went away. It's always there in front of us. So they're going on down the road, heading up to Jerusalem. They always go up, by the way, the Bible always says up to Jerusalem. They're going up to Jerusalem. They go through a county there called Samaria. Samaria is a pocket of people who are kind of half Jewish and half some idolaters. And so there's all enmity between them and the Jews. So he sends the apostles, a couple of them on ahead, says, find a place to eat, find a place to sleep, get some rest, and uh, I'm going to sleep. They go up there, and the Samaritans said, we're not going to let you come here. We don't believe in Jews coming here. We don't want that kind of, quote, diversity. Get out of here. So the apostles come back, and they report to Jesus. Now, you know what they said to Jesus? Get this. This is Luke um, uh, 53, 9:53. We have the power. Do you want us to call power fire down from heaven and burn them up? Do you want us to kill them? They're our enemies. Wipe them out. I'm sure Jesus said, "Oi, vey, oi, vey." You haven't learned anything yet. No. You don't even know what spirit it is that's causing you to do that. That's not the Holy Spirit. That's another kind of spirit. So Jesus is teaching them something very, very important. It's called differentiation and counseling. You have to learn to differentiate one spirit from another spirit. Differentiate the flesh from the spirit. Differentiate our desire and demand, our condemnation from God's and what he does. Because if you can't differentiate, you'll just be lobbing everything together and getting things all confused. Now let's go over to Luke 10. Luke 10 shows why Jesus moved from the 12 to a whole nother group, 70 or 72, some people say. So anyway, there's, there's 12 of those and another 70. So it's 82 people. He sends them out two by two. So I think what Jesus is saying is now, I sent you out. I tried to show you what to do as the 12 and you kept failing, but it's okay. Now I'm going to send you out where you've got to manage and supervise other people. 
and see how they do. But I'm going to change my instructions to be a bit more specific, like I needed to do in my basketball coaching. Because in coaching, you need to be very specific about how, what you can do. You can't knock a person down, but you can knock the ball out. Okay, that's differentiation. They hadn't learned this. So Jesus took the seven. He sent them out two by two. And here's what he said. Go as lambs among wolves. Whoop. That's a whole different thing than going as a lion among wolves. Because sometimes we do go as a lion, but not against people. We go as lambs when we're encountering wolves. Now, frankly, those who know me realize my personality is not lamby. I'm a fairly assertive person. Over the years, I've tried to learn to be more like a lamb, but it's, it's a challenge. So he said, go out as a lamb among wolves and bless them with peace. What? Bless them with peace? We got power. <laughs> we want to wipe somebody out. You know, we, we want to bring that power down. But as long as you're in the flesh, it's all against people. When you're in the spirit, then it's against the spirits that are controlling the people because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So we don't war against people. We war against that which is behind them, controlling them, right? Jesus is teaching this lesson. So he says, okay, go do this and see what happens. Tame wolves with your peace. I would say this, the power of our message is directly proportional to the peace we have and the peace we give. So at the end, now jump over, read Luke 10 if you want to go down through the developmental stages of this thing. Verse 20, at the end, Jesus, they came back and Jesus said, he affirmed them, with this statement, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. As far as I know, and I haven't been corrected first service by Van, that's the only time in scripture that's said. It's the only time I know of where the scripture says Satan was pulled down from heaven by going out in peace, blessing the people, and then Finding where your peace rests upon them. Once the peace rests upon them, go in and listen to them. Build your relationship with them. And when they complain about a problem, pray for the problem. That's the evangelistic process that Jesus rolls out in Luke 9 and 10. Especially in 10. Go bless them when a person approaches you and says, you know, I received your peace and I want to have a relationship, you build a relationship. You eat with them, you talk with them, you nurture them over a period of time. And when there's trust, they trust you, they will share with you their problems. Then you can pray for them. And when God shows up, you can say, you can teach that the kingdom of God has come close to you. By the way, just a quick aside, I'm thinking, I went, I was teaching in Taiwan, teaching this. And, and what I found was, uh, this is exactly how some friends of mine planted uh, seven churches in Taiwan by doing this. They go in and visit the tea houses and they build a relationship with the owners of these small tea houses. Those owners that seem to have received their peace, so they invite them back and they go out and have tea after tea after tea. I think they got filled up with tea. But then 
Well, a lot of times they'd say, well, my wife is in the hospital or my son's in the hospital or someone. And they'd say, can we come to the hospital and visit? And one time I did this, I went to the hospital down there. There must've been 15 people in the hospital room, with all the family. So if you go in and got to pray for that person in the hospital, you got to pray for 15 people, (laughs) all the extended family. So this is what can happen as we build peace and trust that people will say, I have this need, Gary, will you pray for me? And we can pray for them right then. And then we can say when God shows up, when Jesus shows up, the kingdom shows up because the kingdom's Jesus, it's not us. So this is what I love to try to help people see the primary evangelistic tool. And I know you guys are doing, you're going out and reaching, praying for people on the streets and everything. That's fantastic. Now he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning because you did that. But I, I want you to give you a warning. Do not rejoice in the fact that the spirits are subject to you. Do not rejoice in the fact that you've got power, rejoice in the fact that your name is written in heaven. You guys have been doing, am I? Know your identity in Christ. When you know it's Christ and it's Christ's kingdom, it's Christ's power, then you can move with peace and not think, oh, I gotta do something, I gotta heal this person. You know, shift it over to, you know, I'm gonna build three tabernacles. And you know that Jesus is already in you. You are the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. It's already there. So it says, rejoice that the spirits, not that in the spirits are, have a, uh, you have authority over them, but that your names are written in heaven. Finally, I just very quickly, at the very end of Luke 10 is a little story maybe you've heard of. It's called the Good Samaritan. Remember that story? Jesus, again, tells another parable story to emphasize the process that we are to go through to reach out into a hurting, broken, dying world. And at the end of Luke 10, where he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning, rejoice that your name's written in heaven. He talks about how religious people do. They don't have time. And boy, I'll tell you, I can, a lot of times I don't have time to really stop and help the person in need. All right, and then in uh, John uh, 10, 22, there he's challenged again. Who are you? And he says, I and the Father are one. So he's, he's going to Jerusalem and, and John uh, 11, he's heading to Jerusalem and Lazarus gets sick. Now this is, this is the This is something that is really amazing to me. He waits some days before Lazarus dies, before he goes. And when he gets there, his good friends, Mary and Martha, come to me and said, Lord, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. Why did you wait? And he he says, well, he'll rise again. He says, I know he'll rise in the last days. And Jesus said this, I am the resurrection, right? I am the life. He who believes in me, yet should he die, shall live. So he's trying to give them faith. But you know, when you're facing the fact that your brother's been dead and buried for three or four days, it's pretty hard to have faith. I mean, impossible for me. I'm not there. I'm not criticizing Mary and Martha. I'm not criticizing the disciples and the apostles. I'm saying I identify with them. I identify with the fact that I can't quite totally trust the Lord all the time. 
But Jesus is thinking long term. Jesus is trying to plant the seeds in them to think of establishing the church, the kingdom for the long term, not just the current crisis. Often we get so caught up in the current crisis, we forget about the fact that the kingdom is long term. It's going to persist. So he said, no, he died because I want you to see the glory of God and the glory of the son of God. That is our goal, that people would see the glory of God and the Son of God. So then in John eleven thirty eight, he goes to the tomb. Maybe you've seen pictures of this or you've seen uh, uh, videos. And Jesus goes to the tomb. He's standing outside the tomb. And it says he is very uh, emotional inside. And then it says he wept. But I always thought that he was, he was upset. He was in grief. And that may be true in a way. But actually in Aramaic, in the Greek, the emphasis is on his anger. He was enraged. He was very angry. And his powers on the inside, not weeping, but he was ready to fight. He was going to war. Who was he angry at? What was he angry at? Was he angry at Lazarus? Was he angry at Mary and Martha? He was angry at death. This is a precursor next week to Easter. He's angry at death. And it says he snorted like a war horse. You know, horses are skittish. They won't go into crowds. They don't want that. They don't want noise. They don't want yelling. And if you've got a, a war horse going into battle, you have to have a war horse that's trained to do exactly what you say and pay attention to the, to the way you take that horse. And he's got to have armor. The horse has to have armor as well as you. So Jesus snorted like a war horse. Jesus was a war horse against death. And as we re- need to remember, he is by our side fighting for us. He's at war with sickness and death and disease and evil. He's there. He's our safety net. It's not up to us. You know, the, the apostles were angry people. They wanted to do it themselves, right? Do you ever have any anger in you when you feel a little bit persecuted or you see what's going on in the world? Don't you want to take revenge? I do. But Jesus said, let me be your warrior for you at this point in time. So he's on his high horse against death and he yells, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth. He came out of there all wrapped up. But Jesus overcame death. The glory of God and the glory of the Son of God was shown by his defeating death right there in front of everybody. Okay, then let's get to Palm Sunday. That's today. Then the, Jesus goes into Jerusalem. Bethany's just a couple of miles, maybe seven miles from Jerusalem. Jesus walks over there and hundreds of people follow him. Because everybody comes to see Jesus, but who do they want to see more than Jesus? Lazarus. They all knew Lazarus. They knew he died. They probably went to the funeral. They may have mourned. But they wanted to see Lazarus. Was he really walking? Was he really talking? Was he really there? And he was. So Jesus goes in. He'd been the lion of Judah. He'd been the fire on the horse against death. He'd been the power raising Lazarus from the dead. And he's going to have the entry into Jerusalem. 
with power, right? And because the, the Jews thought that the Messiah would come riding on a white horse, a war horse, driving the Romans out and bringing back Israel's glory. But what did he do? He rode on a young donkey to show that he's not only king and lion, but servant and lamb. So we have to be able to differentiate again. Sometimes Jesus is the lion of Judah. Sometimes he's the lamb that was slain for the world. And we have both according to whatever the need is. But remember this, Jesus showed us humility. We need to be humble and allow him to reign. We need to allow him and encourage him and trust him that he'll be our war horse for us when we face death, disease, destructions, demonic forces. We need Jesus. It's good news. It's not bad news. There are a lot of history in the church that kind of spread bad news through the flesh, through war. We go in peace as lambs. Now we're going to have a wonderful celebration of worship. And you can join right into Palm Sunday and enjoy praising Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, coming into Jerusalem, preparing to crush death once and for all. Oh, Lord, come. Guide us. Be with us as we gather in your name, needing you right now to fight for us. And when we fail, to be our safety net. In Christ's name, amen.